This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. On a piece of paper, and then he got up and he said, you know, I had a whole sermon prepared, but... My heart's feeling heavy this morning, and I personally need to hear about the forgiveness of sins. So that's what I'm going to preach on today. And he just preached from his heart about God forgiving our sins. And really, is there any sweeter message that we could possibly hear this afternoon? The good news that in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. That we don't have to labor under this crushing burden of guilt and shame. That God has freed us from our sins. Well, actually, it was uh, Dave Haynes who was scheduled to preach today on our passage, and unfortunately, he's been struck down with a horrible case of food poisoning, so um, I get to preach, and I'm not entirely sorry because I was really looking forward to our text today, and I very generously gave it to the young intern, but God has chosen to smite him so I could have this text, Uh, and I'm hoping that God will uh, recover him, of course, but also speak to us this afternoon through the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Mark 2, verses 1 to 12. If you want to pull it up in your Bible, I think it'll be on the screen ahead of us as well. We're continuing our series called Jesus in Action in the Gospel of Mark. And here we go, Mark chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Well, here's Jesus. He's back in his new hometown of Capernaum. He'd gone on a several-week preaching tour, and you might recall a few weeks earlier, it was in Capernaum that Jesus had begun his ministry. He'd been preaching with impressive authority, and as he was preaching, a demon began to speak out, and Jesus immediately shut the demon out, cast him out, and the whole crowd was amazed at the authority of Jesus, his his authoritative teaching, and his authority over the forces of darkness. And then Jesus went home to Peter's house, where he was probably staying or living, He heals Jesus' mother-in-law, lifts her up, and then that evening, 
the courtyard is crammed full of the whole town bringing their sick to Jesus. And he spends hour after hour laying hands on them and healing them all. And now Jesus is back home. And because of the impetuous disobedience of the leper that we heard about last week, Jesus is no longer able to enter any city openly. So perhaps he slipped in quietly into Capernaum at dusk. He's back home. But the glory of Jesus cannot be hid. And the word spreads like wildfire. And the whole house is crammed full of people. Now these were tiny houses in Galilee. And they might have fit tops 50 or 60 people. And so there's all these people just jammed in this tiny little house. Dads are standing outside, holding their little kids on their shoulders, peeking in the window. The women are standing on their tiptoes, trying to crane their necks into the door. The house is jammed full. And Jesus is preaching the word, Mark tells us. He's preaching the good news that the kingdom of God has arrived in Jesus. The good news that God has appeared, God's taking charge of the world, and he's going to put all things right again. That's the word that Jesus is preaching. And while this is going on, while the house is jammed full of people, a little group appears in the street outside. Four men, four friends, carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. Now I'm guessing this guy was probably not a local because he hadn't been there, obviously, several weeks earlier when Jesus was healing the crowd of people. Very likely, he was from a neighboring village, and his, him and his friends are determined. They are not going to miss out on the healing this time. They are very eager for their friend to be healed. Now, the word Mark uses for mat is like the mat of a poor man. This is not a rich and influential person. This is probably a beggar, like so many of the sick and the crippled and the paralyzed. He has to lie out on the street waiting for people to support him, to give him money. And it wouldn't surprise me if his four friends were not rich or influential either. The poor tend to look after the poor. These might well have been street people. Whatever they were, they were very devoted to their friend for whatever reason. And they are determined and they are desperate that their buddy is going to see Jesus. And they're out in the street. All they can see are the backs of people. They might hear a word or two of Jesus' sermon, but they cannot even see Jesus' face let alone make that critical eye contact with him that is going to the beginning of the miracle that they hope for. They're desperate. They can't see through the door. They can't see through the window. And then one of them has a crazy idea. Behind every Palestinian home was a back staircase leading up to the roof. And the roofs were flat. They were made of branches just laid over the cross beams and covered with grass and then mud that was dried and plaster. And this was rolled out, it was smoothed out, and it was up on your roof that you would go to get a fresh breeze, to dry your laundry, to enjoy dinner in the cool of the evening, and even to pray. It was sort of the getaway, the deck on top of the house. And these guys decide they're going to bring their friend up the stairs onto the roof. They grab some rope and a shovel, and they lug their friend up onto the roof. And Mark tells us, that they, they literally unroof the roof. They start to dig through it. So imagine this. Jesus is sitting or standing preaching. The house is jammed full of people. It's dark outside. It's extremely stuffy. It's sweaty. And Jesus is preaching the gospel. And then some little, some dust starts to fall. 
And then some bigger clods of mud, some small twigs, start to fall on Jesus' head and the people closest to him. No one notices at first. And then a spade breaks through the ceiling. And then the sermon stops and everyone looks up as the spade starts to probe and a hole appears. And hands reach down and start ripping out the branches and the mud. And then four sweaty faces poke their way through the hole to look down on the congregation. And then they disappear and they start lowering their friend down. Jerkily, he comes down to the ground and lies at Jesus' feet. The room, I'm sure, was dead quiet. The congregation is silent. The friends are silent. Jesus is silent. And the man was silent. I'm sure he had, like, a smile up at Jesus, a hopeful smile, but it was a mute pleading. It was his paralysis alone that was pleading for mercy with Jesus. And Jesus looks at the man. He looks at the man, and he sees the man's true misery. And then Jesus says something very unexpected. He says to him, son or child, it's a, it's a term of warmth and friendliness, child, your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. Now to us, that, that is an odd thing for Jesus to say. Clearly, Jesus has missed what this is all about. This guy is paralyzed, and obviously what he needs is for Jesus to do what Jesus has been doing for everyone else, laying his hands on him and saying, you are now healed in the name of the Lord. But Jesus does not say that. He looks at the man and he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, it's weird for us, but it wouldn't have been quite so weird to the people sitting in front of Jesus. Because for Jews, as for many people in the ancient world, sin and sickness were very closely connected. And it was believed, generally speaking, that if you were a sick person, there was some kind of hidden sin, some kind of unconfessed, undealt with sin that was causing whatever affliction you were having. Now, it's pretty clear that Jesus does not believe this is always the case. Do you remember the case of the guy who was born blind in the Gospel of John? And he's asked, okay, was it this man's sin that caused his blindness, or was it his parents? And Jesus says, no, it was neither of their sin. This is happening so that God might be glorified in this man's life. And so we should be extremely careful in saying to anyone who's sick, oh yeah, that's because of your sin. I'm healthy, obviously, because I don't have quite so much sin, but you are suffering because there's some kind of sin in your life. We should never make that kind of one-to-one relationship. There's a whole book in the Bible, the book of Job, that is devoted to slicing through that false equivalency. But it is sometimes true that our sin can have physical effects. The discipline of God, perhaps, reminding us that we cannot live with unconfessed guilt in our lives. It's something that's going to eat us up. And in the case of this man, it seems, it seems to have led to physical paralysis. And Jesus, looking at this man, immediately perceives what his problem is. When we look at people, we have to do a lot of guesswork, don't we? We have to ask a lot of probing questions. We have to listen carefully. And even then, very often, we bungle and we get it wrong. 
But Jesus immediately perceives the root problem here. The paralysis of this man is only a symptom. His true problem is sin. His true problem is a guilty conscience. Now, I'm not sure if this man realized his conscience was guilty. I'm not sure. But what we do know is that he had faith. Him and his friends had faith to come to Jesus. Now, our text says when Jesus saw their faith. I mean, grammatically, it might only refer to the four friends. But it's very doubtful that they were dragging their friend along, unwilling to come to Jesus. No doubt, he as well had faith. And their faith is not uh, a calm, intellectual, reflecting kind of faith. It's clearly a very active faith. Notice that no words are spoken by the paralyzed man or his four friends. Their actions are far louder than any words they might speak. Their faith is audacious, isn't it? I mean... I'm sure it was no more socially acceptable to bust through someone's roof then as it was now. I mean, Jesus is preaching a sermon. Who would not want to hear a sermon direct from the lips of Jesus? And these guys are so desperate for their friend to be healed, they are willing even to interrupt Jesus' message, even to do something that could well have been perceived as extremely rude and disrespectful. But they have not come to Capernaum just to perhaps see a miracle, to get a glimpse of the famous guy, possibly get his autograph in the alley after the sermon. They are there for a purpose, not a theoretical purpose, a real gripping purpose that has to do with the misery of their friend that they love so much. And their faith means they're not going to be stopped by a closed door or a closed window They are willing to unroof a roof if that's what it takes to get their friend to Jesus. And it's their faith that moves Jesus to action. Jesus loves faith. He loves it when people express their wholehearted trust in him. I mean, these guys did not know very much about Jesus. It was the very beginning of his ministry. No doubt they had very foggy and confused ideas about exactly what it was that Jesus had come to do. Their knowledge may have been very small, but they had faith. And the little knowledge they had, they exercised in coming to Jesus. Jesus loves faith. He loves it when we come to him with trust. He's not impressed by a whole bunch of other things, but he is impressed by faith. And it's almost as though our faith is irresistible to Jesus, and he can't help responding in grace and mercy when we come to him, lying paralyzed in our own little mats, looking up to him with pleading eyes. Jesus loves faith. And you know what? In the Gospels, it's curious that Jesus is not so much concerned about who's exercising the faith. As long as someone is exercising some faith somewhere in the situation, Jesus is willing to act. Faith, as small as a mustard seed, exercised by whoever is present, is enough for Jesus to seize on and work on. And Jesus' pronouncement to this man is, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus loves faith, and he loves to forgive sins. This is the heart of Jesus' mission. 
and the good news that he's been announcing in general to the congregation. Now he can speak with power to this paralyzed man who's lying in front of him. His sins are forgiven. Now, naturally, we are very curious about how this guy reacted lying there. I mean, did his eyes light up in relief that his guilty conscience had been liberated? Or did his face fall because what he was really after was a physical healing? We don't know because Mark immediately pans the camera away from the man and over to these teachers of the law, the scribes. And notice that although everyone else is standing on each other's toes in this crowded room, the teachers of the law are sitting. Do you see that in our text? They're sitting down. They show up late, and immediately when they strut into the room with their fancy robes and their long and glorious beards, the couch is immediately vacated, and these men, highly respected in the community, naturally and confidently take their place sitting down. And they're there with their clipboards. They are sent, presumably from Jerusalem, to assess this Jesus, this miracle worker. He was going about preaching and healing people. That is obviously raising some red flags at headquarters. And he needs to be assessed. There needs to be a little quality assurance happening here. Is this a good guy? Is this a bad guy? Is he upholding the Torah, the law of God, or is he somehow undermining it? And sitting there on that couch leaning back with their arms crossed or their pencils poised over their clipboards, their hearts are filled with criticism. And their question is this. Why does this fellow talk like that? Notice that tone of contempt. This fellow, this guy, why is he talking about, why is he talking like this, forgiving people's sins? He's blaspheming. Blasphemy is a sin directly against God, taking God's name in vain. It's a direct attack on God. And in Jewish law, if you were found guilty of blaspheming, you were stoned to death without mercy. So this is an extremely heavy charge that these guys are pondering in their brains against Jesus. And then they ask this question, who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone. And notice, they're, they're not completely wrong. They're half right, because it is true in the Old Testament. God is the only one who forgives the sins of the people. There are many healings that people do in the Old Testament, but God is the only one who forgives sins. No priest can forgive someone's sin. No prophet can, can, can forgive someone's sin. No king can forgive someone's sins. Only God can forgive sin. And the reason, clearly, is because God is the one, ultimately, who's being sinned against. Do you remember in Psalm 51? It's David's prayer of confession, pouring out his sin to God after he has sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba. David is a man whose hands are stained with adultery and murder. But in Psalm 51, he says, God, against you, and you only have I sinned. Of course he sinned against Uriah. Of course he sinned against Bathsheba. But ultimately he knows that his sin is against God. And he bears the guilt of rebelling against God. And therefore, no one has the authority to forgive sins against God. If someone has offended against you, I do not have the authority to forgive that person, do I? 
Only you, as the offended person, have that power. And only God, as the person who has been offended by our sin, has the authority to forgive our sin. And so these scribes, these teachers of the law, who are certainly very theologically astute, who certainly know their Bible cover to cover, immediately put their finger on the theological problem here. Only God can forgive sin. But here's Jesus standing there, pronouncing over someone, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus is going around forgiving people's sins. This is extremely irregular, to say the least. Sins could only be forgiven in the Old Testament by bringing a sacrifice, by going to the temple, and having the priest pronounce God's forgiveness over you. And Jesus appears to have done none of those things. He's just, by his own authority, forgiving this man. And notice Jesus is not even doing what we would do, querying the man, finding out, is he really sorry for his sins? Has he properly expressed repentance? Has there been a long enough time frame that we can say, yeah, he he seems pretty sincere. Now your sins can be forgiven you. No, Jesus says immediately, having only just met this guy who's literally dropped through his ceiling, your sins are forgiven you. And notice, there's nothing this man needs to do to earn Jesus' forgiveness. He's literally paralyzed. He's helpless. There's nothing he can do but lie on his mat looking at Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and gives him this free, unearned, gracious gift. Your sins are forgiven you. That, the scribes perceive, is the audacious, audacious authority that Jesus is claiming over sinful people. Now think about these scribes. These are not men who clearly feel their own need of forgiveness. They're sitting there judging other people and their guilt and their orthodoxy, but they're sitting back harshly judging. They don't like the idea of people of the good news of God being proclaimed and people being liberated from this burden of sin that crushes and paralyzes them. But that is what Jesus has come to do. That is the heart of his mission, to forgive sinful people like you and me, to free us from our guilt and our shame. And Jesus, Mark tells us, immediately knows what's going on in these guys' hearts. Something else only God can do. Jesus can just look into someone's heart, like I'm assuming he did with a paralyzed man, and it's an open book to him. Things that people even hide from themselves in self-denial, Jesus can look down in their hearts and know exactly what we're thinking, what we're feeling, and what the most dark and secret motives of our hearts are. And Jesus is not fooled by these guys. They might as well have spoken it out loud because Jesus perceives what they're thinking and he asks them, why are you asking these questions in your heart? He's rebuking them. And then he poses a little conundrum and he asks them. As Jesus so often asks questions, doesn't he? People ask him questions and he's immediately throwing a question back into their face. Jesus is not going to be the one 
who sits there to be investigated. He's the one who's coming to judge. He's the one who's coming to assess. And he turns back to these men and he asks them a question. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up, take your mat and walk? Which one's easier to say? Well, of course, they're both equally easy just to say, but to say with effect, which one's easier to say? The question is, is Jesus bluffing or not? Anyone can go around saying, your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. I forgive your sins. There are plenty of people in this world who are big talkers, aren't they? There's a lot of big talkers in the church. Blah, 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 blah. But nothing happens with their words. Is Jesus one of these people, blah, 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 and all over the place? Or does his word of forgiveness have effect? Anyone can say you're forgiven. But if you're going to say to someone, to a paralyzed person, get up, take up your mat, and walk, we're going to know right away whether you're bluffing or not, aren't we? We're going to know right away whether your words have power and authority whether it's just a bunch of hot air that is just falling to the ground with a clunk. Which is easier to say? Now, of course, if Jesus had asked the question, which is easier to do, the scribes could have answered that one very easily. It's a lot easier to heal a paralyzed person than to forgive their sins. Because only God can forgive sins. Only God can lift the burden of sin. The question is, does Jesus have God's authority to forgive sins? Or is he just going around as an unauthorized person, bluffing, speaking false words? Did any of you ever see that movie, Catch Me If You Can, with Leonardo DiCaprio? Where he goes around, he pretends he's an airline pilot or a physician, and he kind of fakes his way into these situations and bluffs his way through it. And he's about to do the operation, and he's in his office flipping through the medical textbook, trying to figure out what to do. Is Jesus like that? Is Jesus just faking his way through things, wearing the staff t-shirt, and pretending he belongs? Or is Christ really authorized to go around forgiving people's sins? Well, it's a bit of a theological conundrum, isn't it? And the scribes, you can imagine, looking at each other and whispering behind their hands, trying to figure out, how, how do we answer Jesus? Well, Jesus very generously offers to cut through the theological knot for them. He's going to make this very simple by demonstrating his power. And so, in order to prove, Jesus says, that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he's about to demonstrate his power. Now, we should stop there on that sentence for a moment, because this is the first time that Mark uses this title, the Son of Man. Jesus is referring to himself in the third person. And the Son of Man is kind of a shadowy and mysterious figure in the Old Testament, which is probably why Jesus uses this title. The term Messiah had a lot of military and political baggage that was confusing to people, and so Jesus likes to refer to himself as the Son of Man. And if you were to go go back to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, you can do that later, you can see that the Son of Man in Daniel is described as this human but quasi-divine figure who ascends to God on the clouds, and God clothes this person with his authority and glory and dominion. And he has all the kingdoms of the earth, and every nation is meant to bow to him. This is who the Son of Man is in the book of Daniel. 
And so when Jesus says, I, the Son of Man, have authority on earth to forgive sins, he's saying, I have been given divine authority. I am God's man on earth. Jesus has God's power of attorney. He is fully authorized to forgive the sins of anyone he chooses to. He doesn't have to pick up the phone and call back to headquarters. Jesus doesn't pray, God, would you please forgive this person's sins. He has the full authority to announce to this person, your sins are forgiven you, knowing for certain that his father, God Almighty, will never countermand Jesus' decision because he's always in full conformity to what the father wants. And he possesses the full authority of God to forgive sins. Now, Mark has not stated in explicit terms that Jesus is God, but Mark is beginning to leave clues for us about the incredible authority of Christ, authority so great that he can forgive offenses against God himself. And we have to start wondering, who is this person? This is obviously more than a mere mortal because he's doing things that no one in the Bible has ever done before. He's even going around forgiving people's sins. And so Jesus has laid this challenge out. And then to demonstrate to the teachers of the law and to everyone around that, yes, I have this authority, he then turns back to the paralyzed man. And the camera pans back to this guy who's been patiently lying on his mat, waiting for this conversation to end. And Jesus looks at him. And then, it's interesting, it's not so much for the man's own sake, but for the sake of those around and for the sake of Jesus' opponents. He says, rise, take up your mat, and go home. Now, that could be a very cruel thing to say to a paralyzed person, couldn't it? That could be a very mocking thing to say to someone who cannot move their arms or legs. But Jesus' word comes with power, and it comes with authority. It's the very creative word of God himself. And when Jesus' words are received by this man in faith, the man does what he cannot do. Jesus' word of power awakens this man's limbs, his arms and his legs, and those muscles that have not moved for a long time begin to grow strong, and immediately he's able to rise to his feet to the astonishment of everyone in the congregation, their eyes are bulging out, and this guy steps up, and still without speaking a word, he rolls up his mat, and he walks out of the room in full view of them all. The guy had a very hard time getting into the room, didn't he? But he doesn't need to climb back through the ceiling because everyone steps back in awe and astonishment as this person, they were pretty sure was paralyzed and lowered down into the room, walks out on his own steam. And he disappears around the corner, headed home. And the room is silent for a moment, and then everyone begins praising God. They are filled with amazement at the authority that God has given Jesus, not just to heal people, but even to forgive their sins. An authority powerfully, irresistibly demonstrated by this amazing miracle. Now, it's Quite the story that Mark has told us, isn't it? One of Jesus' more vivid miracles. What is Mark's theological point? What is Mark trying to get at by selecting this story to awaken our own faith? 
I think it's this, that Jesus' healings are sacraments of forgiveness. His healings are sacraments of forgiveness, by which I mean this, that the lesser thing that Jesus does, the lesser thing, healing a paralyzed man, imagine describing that as the lesser thing, that authenticates and proves and demonstrates that Jesus can do the greater thing, that he is the authority to do the greater thing, which is to forgive our sins. 400 years ago, Matthew Henry said that to forgive our sins is to strike at the root of all disease. To forgive our sins is to strike at the root of all disease. Forgiveness of sins is not greater because it deals with our spirit and uh, healing paralyzed people. That's only our body. No, no, no. That's not what this is about. This is about reconciliation with God. When someone is forgiven, the shameful burden of debt they've borne is wiped clean. It's taken away. And now they can be welcomed back into relationship with God, friendship with God, invited back into God's family without any guilt hanging over their head anymore. To be forgiven is to be treated as though you had never sinned. To be treated as though you had never sinned. Imagine how your conscience would feel if you had never sinned in your life. That you would always love God perfectly with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And your record was completely spotless and you had pleased God in every way. Imagine what it would feel like to have that conscience. The conscience of Christ himself. Think about how Jesus could approach his father in prayer. Without hesitation, without doubt, without shame, he could come freely before his father. And when Jesus forgives people, he is saying, you may now have my own conscience that I come before the father with. You don't need to have any kind of weight hanging over your head. You don't need to feel the sword dangling over your neck by a thread. You don't need to live in dread of some future judgment when all your secret sins are going to be brought to light. You can live in complete freedom and complete confidence before a holy God. That is what Jesus is not only offering, but he's authoritatively giving when he pronounces forgiveness over this paralyzed man and when he pronounces forgiveness over us. See, there is a day coming when we will all be healed. Healing is guaranteed. Some of us may experience a foretaste in this life, and that is a wonderful thing. But one day, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to banish sickness and death forever. And no one is going to be left unhealed, and no one will be told to wait. But forgiveness is offered now. Forgiveness is offered to you this afternoon. If you only come before Jesus and lie before him in faith and expectancy, you can receive forgiveness. You don't have to lug this heavy burden of your own guilt around your whole life. You can give it to Jesus and let him put that burden on his own shoulders and take it to the cross and destroy it there. What a foolish thing to try to deal with our own sin ourselves. Jesus is the only one authorized to forgive sins. 
guess what? You cannot forgive yourself. If you have offended me and I come to you and confront you about it and you say, oh, I forgave myself weeks ago, I would not be satisfied with that, would I? We do not have the authority to forgive our own sins any more than you have the authority to cancel your own credit card debt. Someone else has to do that for you. And only Jesus can do it. No one else is, no one else is authorized. No therapist can forgive your sin for you. And no priest can forgive your sin for you. When we have our time of confession every Sunday, and I pronounce forgiveness, I am not pronouncing on Bart's authority. Trust me, that check would be worthless, and it will get rejected. I'm simply announcing in Christ's name that when we confess our sins, Jesus forgives our sins by bearing their guilt himself. Jesus alone can forgive sins. Man, Jesus loves to heal, and we want to pray and seek and be in faith for physical healing in our congregation. That would be a wonderful thing. But awesome as that is, that is only the sideshow. Something even better is happening in the main ring, the forgiveness of sins. And one reason we want to have healings is so that people's faith can be strengthened to know, yes, this Jesus who was able to heal also has the authority to forgive people's sins. And he has the authority to forgive my sin. I wonder who you identify most with in this story. Do you feel like the paralyzed man sometimes, lying on your mat, helpless to become a better person, to please God, to change your own situation, unable even to speak, able only to look at Jesus? All Christ is asking for is your faith. In fact, the less able you are yourself, the more cause you have to exercise faith in Jesus. He's offering it this afternoon as a free gift. There's no price tag. You don't have to pull out your wallet. He's not asking you to promise eternal and perfect obedience. He's offering simply as a gift the forgiveness of sins. But maybe you're a little bit more like those teachers of the law, sitting there, arms crossed, your clipboard, weighing and assessing and judging. Man, I am very guilty of that myself often. I'm, for Pete's sake, I'm studying theology, and I love to sit there and assess sermons and think about how I would have done it and weighing people's doctrine. But how often do I sit there unmoved myself, not willing to see myself as a sinner who desperately needs the grace of God? And we can have all the theology in the world, and we can have every Bible verse memorized from Genesis to Revelation. But if we do not feel ourselves in need of forgiveness ourselves, we are never going to receive it. The one thing that blocks Jesus from forgiving people is their unwillingness to admit they are sinful. After There's an interesting book called, I think it's called The Nuremberg Diaries. And it was written by a U.S. Army sergeant who was a psychologist. And after the war, these leading Germans who had not committed suicide were arrested. And they were tried by Soviet and British and American judges. And this psychiatrist went and interviewed these guys. Pretty fascinating book as he sits down with Goering and these other uh, Germans who were responsible for the Holocaust. And the amazing thing is, of all these, I don't know, 20 guys, there were only a couple who expressed some remorse for the horrible slaughter of millions and millions of people. 
And it was incredible, the self-justification that almost everyone had, explaining that they weren't actually terrible people, and they were just following orders, and this was necessary. And clearly, they all believed in their own hearts that they were fundamentally good and decent people. The capacity of human beings to deceive themselves and to justify their own actions is staggering. And just because you think that you're a good and decent person doesn't necessarily mean so, especially when you come face-to-face with a holy God. There is a day coming. It's inexorably approaching when we will all have to give account to God about how we have lived our lives. God created us to love him and worship him and love those around us. And if we have been spending our lives selfishly on ourselves, we are going to have to give account one day. There is no avoiding it. Or maybe, hopefully, you see yourself like the four friends, willing to crash through doors and windows, and if that doesn't work, willing to rip the roof open so that their friend can come to Jesus. Jesus responds to their faith too. Their faith helps win Christ's forgiveness for their friend. And I wonder, how willing are we to pick people up in their mats and take hold of whatever willingness they have and bring them to Jesus? Clearly, these guys knew there was nothing they could do to help their friend. They couldn't heal his paralysis, and they sure as heck couldn't forgive his sins. But, poor as they might have been, they knew one person who could. And the one thing they did, and the one thing they knew they had to do for their friend, was bring him at all costs to the feet of Jesus. You know, when we come to the feet of Jesus in faith, or when we bring other people to the feet of Jesus in faith, really good things happen. Trust me, Jesus is far more willing to heal people And he's far more willing to forgive people than we are. Even at our best and our greatest and fullest love for people, that is far exceeded by the grace and mercy of Jesus towards sinners who need forgiveness and who need healing. Jesus loves to forgive. He loves to forgive. And if there's one aspect of his authority that he really enjoys exercising, it's not judging people, it's not condemning people, He did not come for those things. He came to this world to save people from their sins, to bring forgiveness. And nothing brings Christ more pleasure than to announce with power and authority into people's hearts, be of good cheer. Your sins, which are many, are forgiven you. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to sit here glum and cast down. The good news is, whatever else may be wrong in our lives, and we all have a lot of things we wish were different and we wish were better, We are forgiven people. We're forgiven people. And if we're forgiven, everything else is going to be well eventually. We're forgiven. We're reconciled to God. And he says, if God is for us, what can be against us? What can be against us if God is for us? If our sins are forgiven, everything is going to work itself out. God's going to work everything out for us eventually, so long as our sins are forgiven. Let's pray and thank God for this, shall we? And ask him to make these things real in our own hearts. Father God, we are so thankful that your heart is full of mercy and that your son, who perfectly reflects your character, loves to forgive and is authorized to forgive. 
and he is present here through his spirit, bringing forgiveness to all who come in faith. So, Lord, awaken our own hearts by your spirit so that we might respond in faith. If we've never responded before, if we've never come to Jesus before, may we come today, God. Bring us to your son in power, we ask. And if we are Christians, but uh, our hearts are feeling dirty and guilty and gross and condemned, help us to respond in fresh faith, to come to you the way we first did, to receive this free gift of forgiveness that's offered without money, without price, as a free and pure gift from your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.